just a brief reminder that at the conclusion of the service, we'll observe the Lord's Supper. And so at any point between now and then, you can go over to my right and get an element, one of the elements that are in those silver bins. And my voice is going crazy right now. It's already about to go out. So forgive me. Pray for your boy. All right. Uh, we begin this uh, morning's sermon just as a brief recap of where we've been. We have been looking at the book of 1 Timothy over the last few weeks. We uh, at Temple Hills Baptist Church have a practice of just opening the Bible and working through book by book by book. And so we've been over the last few weeks looking at the epistle to Timothy written by Paul uh, in the late uh, 60s. Right, of the first century, like 65, 67 AD, and looking at how that book, when Paul is written to Timothy then, instructs us. Right? And so if you have your Bibles, just turn with me to 1 Timothy. We continue our time this morning looking at what God's Word has to say for us today. This morning we find ourselves in 1 Timothy chapter 3, and we'll be looking at verses 1 through 7 this morning. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. If you are new to the Bible, 1 Timothy is in the New Testament. It's after kind of all the Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1st, 2nd Thessalonians, and then 1 Timothy. All right? But we've made it so easy with technology. Now, you don't even have to flip. You can just scroll through an electronic Bible and find it. So I hope you can follow along. Uh, if you're new to Temple Hills Baptist Church, you're going to need a Bible. Right? Because we want the sermons we preach here to come out of God's Word. And so uh, if you don't have a Bible, uh, find someone around you, right? They can point you to go grab your Bible from inside. We want you to be looking at the book with us. First Timothy chapter 3, this morning we'll look at verses 1 through 7. Paul says this, The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. So here's what I think is the main idea of these seven verses. The main point of 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Elders are Christ's gifts to teach and lead his church, reflecting his holy and tender character. Pretty simple. Can we see that in the text? Elders are Christ's gifts to teach and lead his church, reflecting his holy and tender character. As we walk through this passage this morning, I, I think Paul points our direction in two ways. All right, so two points of the sermon. Number one, we see the high calling of the pastor. We see that in verse one. And point two, we see the high character and competence required. We see that in verses two through seven. So, so point one, the high calling of the pastorate. And point number two, the high character and competence that's required. See that in verses two through seven. Point number one, the high calling of the pastorate. Look there at verse one. Paul says, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Remember again, Paul's stated purpose in this book. If you got your Bibles open, let your eyes drop down to verses 14 and 15 of chapter 3. 
Paul says there, I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. That purpose influences all that Paul writes in this letter to Timothy. He wants Timothy and the church at large to know how they ought to behave, how they ought to conduct themselves, how they ought to be ordered. We saw Paul give some specific instructions last week as it pertains to how men and women should distinctly live in the church. And in our passage this morning, and in the one we'll look at next week, he notes how specific offices should look in the church. What qualities should mark the people who fill those offices? And he starts with the office of elder. And I don't think it's random that, that Paul starts with this office. In our passage last week, Paul instructed the church that he did not permit women to teach or to have authority over men. But this chapter starts with Paul highlighting those who have been assigned to teach and have authority over the congregation. Certain men who serve as pastors, as elders. Now, you'll notice I'm using terms that are not in the text. The text talks about the office of overseer. If you've got a KJV or NKJV, it, it translates it as a bishop. But I'm intentionally, intentionally using the terms pastor or elder to again remind us of the way the Bible uses all these terms as synonyms, not as successive steps on a ladder. We talked about this a few weeks ago, but elder and pastor and overseer are all used in the scriptures to refer to the same office, the office of pastoral leadership in a local church. So in Titus chapter 1, verse 5, Paul tells Titus that he left him at Crete to appoint elders in every town. And then he starts giving qualifications for these elders. And in verse 7, he says, an overseer must be above reproach. And Paul didn't suddenly switch subject matters. He's talking about the same office, elders, overseers. Or in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, Paul writes, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder to shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. The term shepherd in that passage is the verb form of the word translated pastor. So Peter, writing to elders in the church, tells them to pastor the flock of God, exercising oversight or serving as overseers, a pastor, elder, overseer, one office. Again, we've been through this before, but I don't think it's a waste of time for us to tread back through old terrain. We want to be biblical in our understanding of terms and offices. These separate terms used to talk about this singular office are meant to highlight the various aspects of it. The term pastor or shepherd brings to mind the tender and attentive and protective care that a shepherd would, would give his flock out in the fields. The term elders recalls those older Jewish men we see frequently talked about in the Old Testament who led in the decision making in a village or a local town. And the term overseer emphasizes the authoritative function of these men to watch over the souls and the lives of church members. It's this office that Paul says is a noble office, a noble task, or literally in the Greek, a good work. God, through the apostle, calls the work of pastoring a good work. This is not a man-made office brought into the church and superimposed onto people. This is a gift from God. And as it comes from God, like all his gifts, it is good. Do you view the office of the pastor that way? Maybe you don't see the need or the value of 
the pastor. Perhaps you're uh, suspicious of it, of any kind of authority, really. And perhaps using spiritual-sounding justification. You might say, Jesus is my ultimate authority. Well, in that way, you'd be right. I mean, Peter calls Jesus the chief shepherd in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 4. And the overseer of our souls in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses tw verse 25. But the chief shepherd has raised up under shepherds. The head overseer has enlisted assistant overseers to care for our souls. Jesus Christ died for the church. The chief shepherd laid down his life for the sheep. He died for our sins in our place so that we could be saved. But he rose up on the third day, claiming authority and rule and victory over sin and Satan and death. He ascended into heaven. And Ephesians chapter 4 verse 8 tells us that when he ascended, as spoils of his victory, he gave gifts to the church. Ephesians chapter 4 verses 11 and 12 specifying these gifts as prophets and apostles and as shepherds or pastors to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. So yes, Jesus is our ultimate authority. But throughout the Bible, God has exercised his authority through men whom he's raised up over his people. God appointed Moses to, to govern his people Israel and punish any who oppose him. After Moses, God raised up Joshua to lead his people. And later, he raised up judges. And ultimately, he raised up King David to rule over them. Through it all, God never relinquished his sovereign rule, but led his people through men. It's the same thing we see in the New Testament here with this office of pastor or overseer. Men under God watching over God's people. And notice I said men, plural. The office of overseer or pastor is not reserved for one man only, a kind of CEO in a congregation, but for a plurality of men in a single congregation. You see that in places like Acts chapter 14, verse 23, or Philippians chapter 1, verse 1. That is, a local church is to be led by multiple qualified men, raised up by God and recognized by the church. It's a high calling, a noble calling, a good work. And notice how Paul intends to draw attention to that reality. He says at the beginning of verse 1, the saying is trustworthy. We saw the same phrase back in chapter 1 as Paul talked about the trustworthiness, the reliability of the fact that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Well, just as trustworthy is this, that to aspire to the office of elder is a noble task. Now, why does Paul seemingly have to convince people of that? Well, perhaps the, the false teachers that we learned about in chapter 1 themselves used to be elders but had drifted away from the truth and had used their platforms to instead teach heresy, bringing disrepute to the office. Or perhaps they weren't once elders. But by teaching what Paul labeled a different doctrine, they challenged the elders in Ephesus and the office altogether. I mean, who needs this? this formal, boring office of leaders, of elders who just stick to the same old truths. When anyone can, can rise up and teach you new things, exciting things, mysterious things, the myths and genealogies and what the law really means. Whatever the case, Paul saw fit to double down on the dignity inherent in the office of pastor. No alternate teaching. No failure by former leaders altered the nature of the office. It is still good. That was true then, and it's still true today. 
you know, the office of pastor has fallen on hard times. What was once a position of esteem and dignity has seemingly become a platform for disgrace and distrust. How many stories have we heard of moral failures among pastors? How many times have we seen pastors longing for power and becoming puppets for politicians? How many instances of scandal or cover-up or corruption have been found not among Hollywood producers, but among pastors? Yet still, with all that, Paul says to us, the office is good. You know, Satan is always trying to take what God created as good and ruin it, whether it be marriage or ministry. But he cannot destroy God's designs, nor frustrate God's plans. Yes, there may be abuses, but don't look at the abuses. Look to the glorious task it is to officially serve Christ's church as one of his designated overseers and strive for it strive for it Paul wants people to want to serve in this office and he says if anyone aspires to longs for the office of overseer he desires a noble task I think it's too important to, important to note here and this is not the only position that God deems as good and that godly people should desire. I think in the past that's been one of the mistakes that churches have made. And we've seen people showing spiritual interest or fruit. And we just automatically assume that they need to be pastors. That's sometimes true. But that's not the only position in the church that's honorable. Paul says elsewhere that every single member in the local church is indispensable. But nor is pastoring the only job in which you can glorify God. Both men and women can give glory to God as they work in many other professions. As teachers and homemakers, as accountants and barbers and administrators. Jesus calls us all to be salt and light wherever he's placed us. And so we need Christians in business and finance and education and entertainment. Uh, some of the godliest people in the scriptures worked in what we consider secular jobs. Uh, Joseph and Daniel worked in pagan governments. Even Paul himself worked at least part-time as a tent maker. And so I don't want anyone thinking that pastoral ministry is the only path that godly people should pursue. But it is a path that some godly men should pursue. Paul commends spiritual ambitions here. He delights to see men desire the good work of pastoring. But you know, sometimes what we find in our churches is a lack of this kind of desire. Now, why is that? Again, I'm not saying that every man needs to, to desire to pastor. But I am saying that every Christian man ought to have some spiritual aspirations. I mean, it's a little concerning when you see men who are driven by a lot of things, driven by money, driven in their careers, driven in other pursuits. But when it comes to spiritual matters, there's a dousing of flames, a kind of spiritual lethargy. What causes that? Is it laziness? A lack of wanting to do work? You know, pastoring is good, but it is work. Hard work. And while some are willing to do physical labor in their yards or mental labor in their school studies, they aren't as eager to do the spiritual labor required in their churches. Praying for others pursuing others, counseling others, taking on others' burdens, studying the word, teaching the word, living carefully by the word. Perhaps you know all the, the necessary work of pastoring and you respond, no, I'm good. 
But in responding like that, consider that you may be cutting yourself off from something that God calls good. I want more men here to aspire to what's good through the office of pastor. I wonder if the lack of men's presence in the church or the lack of their spiritual passion when present has fueled our sisters feeling like they need to take up the slack and serve where the men fail to. That sometimes leads sisters to taking up this office of pastor that the Bible reserves for men. And that shouldn't be the case, and we don't want to justify that, but, but maybe, rather than only lamenting of sisters serving where they shouldn't, the men should aspire to serve where they should. We want men to want the things that God wants for us, to have a spiritual hunger to lead and to love God's people. I want our young men to aspire to this office. Why is it that in many of our neighborhoods, we find our young men's aspirations only reaching as high as being ball players or rappers? Now there's nothing wrong with being a ball player and nothing inherently wrong with being a rapper, giving you more of the Shyland Trip Lee variety than the baby. But often, what's feeding those aspirations is the desire to be rich or famous. But I want you to know the rich reward of giving your life to make Jesus famous. And pursuing the office is one of the ways that you can do that. Young people, I pray that what you see over your time here at this local church is a group of men who look like you who come from neighborhoods like you, who love the Lord, who love the word, who love their wives, who lovingly lead and provide for their families, who lay down their lives to serve other church members, who live with integrity and honor, who use their words graciously, who encourage each other in the Lord, and who stand unswervingly on the truth of the gospel. I pray the Lord raises up those kinds of men to serve together in the office of pastor here at THBC. And I pray that their example ignites in you a desire to be like them as they imitate Christ. Aspiration, ambition is a good thing, especially when it's tied to a good work. Here Paul lifts up the office of pastor as worthwhile of our pursuits. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. But aspiration to this high office is not enough. With this high calling, high character, and high competence is required. Which leads us to point number two, the high character, the high competence that's required. Having established the nobility of the office, Paul uses the rest of these verses to lay out the qualifications needed to fill it. And he starts in a seemingly strange place. What are the minimum qualifications for this work? First, high character. And that's striking, isn't it? I mean, we often don't look first to character, but credentials. What have you done so far? Have you been to seminary? Do you have a master's degree in divinity? What prominent evangelical figure has endorsed you? How many Twitter followers do you have? How many churches have you passed in before? How many members did y'all have or ministries did you start there? Or we don't first look to character, but charisma and charm. Does this man have a magnetic personality? Does he light up the room when he steps into it? Is he good looking, a sharp dresser, and a people person? Or, or maybe it's not credentials or charisma that we value, but corporate skills. Can he run an organization? 
Uh, can he raise funds? Will he increase the profit margin? But Paul backgrounds all these other factors and highlights character as most important. In that way, Paul's focus here with men and the office of pastor is the same as his focus on sisters in the previous passage. Remember last week in chapter 2, we saw Paul downplay the significance of external beauty, of outward adornments, and, and rather show that what's truly valuable, what's noteworthy, is who a woman is, her godliness. But it's the same thing here. The question that matters most when it comes to pastors or potential pastors is not how, but who. It's not how good a man looks or how impressive his resume is, but who he is. What's his character like? You see in verses 2 and 3. And then in verses 6 and 7, Paul talk about what a man must be and what a man must not be. First in verse 2, the, the kind of overarching category, an overseer must be above reproach, blameless. That doesn't mean he must be perfect, if that were the case, only Jesus could fill the role. But it means there shouldn't be anything evident in the man's life that would readily disqualify. There wouldn't be any charges that stick to him. No one would be shocked to hear that he's a pastor. And under this, this kind of heading of an overseer being above reproach, Paul then fleshes out what that looks like specifically. At first, he should be the husband of one wife, or, or literally a one-woman man. This doesn't mean that a man must be married in order to serve as a pastor. Were that so, Paul would be disqualifying himself here and many others. As he states in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, that he was single and wished that others were single like him, that they might give undivided devotion to the Lord. Neither do I think this passage is saying that a man can only serve as pastor if he's never been married before. Again, in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul allows for remarriage if a spouse dies or if an unbelieving spouse deserts a believer. And Jesus, I think, does the same in Matthew chapter 19 for those who are the innocent parties in a biblical divorce. Rather, Paul is writing into a culture in which the normal pattern was for men of a certain age to be married. And in such cases, Paul is stressing here absolute fidelity in marriage. No cheating, no flirting with other women, no physical or emotional affairs. Men are to be one women, men. Well, a few months ago, our brother Warner sent me a, an interview of Nick Cannon being asked about fathering children with multiple women. To which Nick responded, that's a Eurocentric concept. When you think about the ideas of you're supposed to have this one person for the rest of your life. To which I might respond to Nick, no, that is not a Eurocentric concept. That is a biblical concept. Born not recently in the Western world, but born in the mind of God and manifest in the Garden of Eden and made known again in this passage to a Middle Eastern audience 2,000 years ago. Whether married or unmarried, Elders are to be models of fidelity and sexual purity. Not watching pornography and not committing adultery. If unmarried, not committing fornication. Not involved in dating relationships where you push the bounds of physical intimacy to the very limits. They should be men whose minds and whose motives and whose actions are geared towards faithfulness to their wives and only to their wives. Amen. And saints, praise God of how often that's the case. You know what gets all the publicity is the unfaithful pastors, the unfaithful Christians. Well, saints, look around our congregation and see all the men who are faithful to their wives, 
celebrate that and pray that we would remain that way. And next, Paul says that pastors should be sober-minded and self-controlled and respectable. And what does it mean to be sober-minded? Well, it doesn't simply mean not to get drunk with alcohol. I mean, Paul gets to that in, in verse 3. Uh, but it means not to be drunk with all the other things that can fill not just the stomach, but the soul and dull our spiritual senses. You know, we often can't be filled with the spirit because we're already full of the world. We drink in the flood of information that pours in from social media. We imbibe all the images and worldviews being served on tap on the TV or the radio. We get intoxicated by the allurements of, of bigger houses and better phones of nicer stuff. It all snuffs out our senses of what's really important. Jesus and his kingdom. The pastors ought to be temperate, not too influenced and not too moved by the things of this world. They ought to be self-controlled in lust and in speech and in habits. Show me a man that lacks self-control in one area, and there's a good chance that it's spilled over into other areas. Does a man eat too much? Does he watch too much TV? Does he tweet too much? Can he not put a guard over his lips? Does he always have to be talking? Can he not control himself from growing angry when criticized or corrected? He lacks the kind of restraint that's needed to serve as a pastor and needs to grow in displaying this fruit of the Spirit that's so very needy to serve well. But as one author says, when sober-mindedness and self-control are evidence, when they reign, what it produces is a respectable man, someone who lives an ordered life. And next, Paul says an elder must be hospitable. You don't only see him on Sundays for service. Rather, his home, his schedule, his life is open to others. He has nothing to hide. He lives a transparent life, one that invites people in, and one that reaches out to show love to others. You know, I think this is an implicit reminder of how much good ministry happens in homes. I mean, here at THBC, we are not trying to make Sundays carry all the weight of discipleship. We're not trying to make programs throughout the week carry that weight either. We intentionally leave most of our calendar open for you to open your homes and your calendars to serve and care and encourage and equip other members and your neighbors and your family. And don't think that hospitality only has to happen in homes. Inviting people out to lunch or to coffee or on walks for the purpose of fellowship and accountability and godly encouragement are fine ways to show hospitality. Now, say, if you want to use this building, this big building that we have, for that purpose, please reach out to me. Right? We do not want this to be a stagnant building we only use once a week. We want this building even to serve as a tool for ministry. All of us are called to be hospitable, and not just elders. And in fact, you, you'll notice that most of the items in this list are something that all Christians, male and female, pastors or non-pastors, should strive for. But pastors especially should be marked by these things, including hospitality. Paul ends the list of what an elder must be in verse 2 with the quality of being able to teach, which we'll skip over for now and come back to in just a minute when we talk about an elder's competencies. From these positive commands in, in verse 2 of what an elder must be, I notice how Paul then moves to what an elder must not be in verse 3. He must not be a drunkard. I'm pretty straightforward. And this man can't abuse alcohol. It shouldn't be someone who gets intoxicated. Friends, just a reminder, drunkenness is a sin. It's not just the crazy things you do when you're drunk. 
that displeases God and brings shame on yourself. It's getting drunk itself that offends God's holy character. And to stretch the application to today, neither should a pastor be someone who gets high, either on pills or on weed. He's not someone who abuses substances. Neither should the man be violent, but, but gentle. You notice how often there's a direct correlation between drunkenness and violence? Perhaps Paul has in mind here Proverbs chapter 20, verse 1. Wine is a mocker, a strong drink, a brawler. You get drunk, and you get a little liquid courage that leads you into a fight, and often leads you into a beating, and leads you right out of being qualified to pastor as well. But there's another way to be violent that Paul forbids him. Not just physically, but verbally. Being abusive with your words. Being a bully. Barking orders and commands. Friends, that is not you showing who's in charge. That's you showing how out of control you are. Pastors ought to be men not known for violence or for abusive behavior, either in act or in speech, but who are Instead, gentle, tender. Maybe that presses against your assumptions of masculinity. But Jesus Christ, the manliest of all men, the perfect man, said this about himself. I am gentle and lowly in heart. Not overly judgmental and aggressive, not harsh but kind, courteous, yielding. A man with a gentle spirit will avoid the kind of quarrelsomeness that Paul next forbids. And yes, there may be times where pastors will have to stand up and fight, but it shouldn't be the case that we go looking for fights, that we love fighting. Any man who loves to argue should not be an elder. If his disposition is to go pick battles, lobbing assaults at his opponents using the most heated rhetoric and the most flaming charges, he is not fit for the office. And following up on this theme in a second letter, Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 24 through 25, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil even, and yet correcting his opponents with gentleness. Friends, the invention of Twitter or the ability to post a comment on a blog has not canceled out God's commands here that God's man should not be quarrelsome, but gentle. Lastly, in verse 3, Paul says an elder must not be a lover of money, must not be greedy for gain. A pastoring is not to pad your pockets, to make you prosperous while your people get poorer. And that doesn't mean you shouldn't pay certain pastors. We'll see Paul address that later in this book. But if a man is only in it for a paycheck, He's in it for the wrong reasons. Love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. How disqualified then that makes a man of God who should be a man known for holiness, godliness. As we run out this, this list of character traits, of qualities, jump down to verses 6 and 7 with me. As we see Paul again give negative and positive instructions. He says in verse 6 what an elder must not be. He must not be a recent convert. Or he may become puffed up with conceit and, and fall into the condemnation of the devil. And in verse 7, he again says what an elder must be. He must be well thought of by outsiders, uh, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Uh, both verses, again, are addressing a man's character and saying that it must be proven and consistent, which takes time which takes patience, 
And so just because a man gets saved and shows immediate zeal for the Lord and abundant apparent spiritual fruit doesn't mean you should jump up and make him an elder. Jesus warned in a parable of the type of person who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy and endures for a while. But when trouble comes, he falls away. A pastor is a man who's been through some stuff, through some trials, and who stood firm in faith through them. Put a man up too quickly, and he might become puffed up, boasting in his own abilities, in his own gifts, to, to rise up so fast, only to fall into the same condemnation as the devil when he boasted before God. Friends, pride always goes before a fall. The same kind of character testing is to be done, not simply over time, but over different spheres. Now, what's a man like at work? What's he like in his neighborhood? What's he like at his kids' sporting events? Is he well thought of and respected by outsiders? Is his character consistent? Or is the person who shows up Sundays a made-up saint? Or the man is a monster in every other setting? character, not credentials, a character, not charisma, a character, not a corporate mindset is what matters to Paul, is what matters to God. Who a man is, is important to observe before you appoint a man to pastor. Is Christ evident in his life? Can his transforming power be seen in the transformed life of this man? What is his character like? And friends, I think this is just an implicit reminder that in our world of podcasted preachers, of instant access to other teachers and leaders who we might value, to hold our value in them lightly, benefit from other teachers and other preachers. Yes, soak up the rich resources the Lord has given us, but know that you don't know these men's lives. You don't know what kind of men they are. Give your attention and time to submitting to the leaders that God has put over you in your local congregation. Listen to and follow them whose lives you can observe more than those whose lives you can't. There's a second quality other than character that Paul says that eldership possesses here. Not just exemplary character, but also stellar competence and particularly the competencies to teach and to lead. You know, those are the two primary competencies that elders must possess because those two competencies are what separate an elder from a congregation and what separate an elder from the office of a deacon. Unlike the other members of the church and unlike deacons, the elders are given the unique authority to teach and to lead God's church. And they must be able to do both well. I think we see that highlighted in this text. So jump back up to the end of verse two. And we see that an elder must be able to teach. But teach what? Well, not history or science. Not philosophy or math, thank God. An elder, must be able to teach the Bible. The Bible is the book that the church lives by. And so an elder must be able to handle it well. To teach it, he must know it. To know it, he must study it. An elder should not be a man with an inch deep understanding of God's word. He needs to know what the scriptures say and know what the scriptures mean but he must also know how to communicate them clearly and faithfully to others in instruction. This does not mean that every elder needs to be a gifted preacher. The pulpit ministry, what I'm doing right now, is not the only way to demonstrate the ability to teach. I think we see that later in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17. 
when Paul says there are a subset of elders who especially labor in teaching and preaching. And yet, according to verse 2 here, all elders need to be able to teach. And so there must be other avenues to teach other than the public gathering. The Bible studies, Sunday schools, a one-on-one -on -one discipleship, a counseling session are all settings where teaching can be deployed. And this ability to teach is not based on style or form or preference. That is, trying to determine whether someone can teach is not a matter of comparing him to another man's preaching. Right? So you've got your favorite preacher and then you come and hear your pastors on Sunday, right? Don't judge the ability to teach based on style differences, right? Based on whether the oratorical skill matched up, matches up, right? The ability to teach is not one that's based on oratory or your desired delivery technique. A man may not be great at public speaking, but he may excel in handling the word in smaller settings and walking people through the scriptures to help them understand their coherence, in explaining difficult doctrine to others, in bringing the Bible to bear on people's problems, and using the word to counter false doctrine. All that shows a deep knowledge of God's word and an aptitude to teach it. There's a second competency that's required of pastors. Not only to teach, but to lead God's people. To lead the church. And we see Paul address that here as well. In verses 4 and 5, Paul says a man must manage his household well. With all dignity. Uh, keeping his children submissive. Now again, at first read, this is something that all Christian men should strive for. To have godly homes where they are using their God-given authority well. A caring for their wives and children in a way that promotes flourishing and order. And his family isn't flaming out in all-out anarchy or chaos. His children are disobedient. His wife isn't dismissive of them. It's not that he has the perfect home, but he doesn't have one that's perpetually in chaos or unrest. And here's why Paul says that's so important in verse 5. Because if a man can't manage, oversee his own household well, how in the world will he care for, shepherd, lead God's church? His home is to be a proven ground, proving ground, attesting his competence to lovingly lead well. One of the main competencies that a pastor must possess. They must be able to teach well, but they also must be able to lead well. These competencies and character traits outlined here in this passage will never be perfectly met, but they can be increasingly exhibited. So I hope you don't read this passage and think that these kinds of men do not exist. And so figure that we just have to cut some corners and overlook a man's lack of character or lack of competency in order to get more elders. Friends, that will not go well and will ruin a church. I also hope you don't think the opposite. That a man must perfectly display these things all the time. And so you hold off on recognizing any more men to serve because no one fits the bill. Also, I hope you don't think that what's here in these verses could never describe you. You're too messed up, too sinful to ever meet any of these criteria. On your own, you can't. You can't. In your sinful flesh, you cannot. But Jesus Christ has come to take away your sin. He died in your place and rose from the grave to make you a new creation. He sent his spirit to work in us and produce godly character that is exemplified in godly lives. Friend, in other words, if you think your sin is what separates you, 
from being the kind of person described in this list, then today, separate yourself from your sin and give your life to Christ. Trust in him and his power to save you and to make you a new person. If you want to talk more about what that looks like, talk to me or anyone else around you after service. We love to show you what following Christ and having a new life in him might look like. As we close, for us as a church, four takeaway things. Four things I think we can and should do with a list like this. Number one, pray. Pray through this list that the Lord would raise up elders in our church that exemplify these qualities. I'll come back this evening at 5 o'clock for our prayer service as we'll, we'll model some of that and praying through some of this passage. And number two, pay attention. Look out for men in the church who meet these qualities. Have your eyes peeled on godliness. Observe, observe their lives for spiritual fruit. Number three, point out. Gossip positively about people in the church whose lives and whose teaching you benefited from and who you see faithfully serving in our church. Friends, send me recommendations of men you think can and should serve as elders. You can start doing that even this afternoon, this evening. Send me emails. That doesn't mean that they're going to be, but look out for men who are already showing these kind of qualities and send me those names. And number four, practice. Practice. Though this is a list specifically for elders, these qualities, again, should be found in all Christians. Put yourself in this list. This afternoon over lunch, let me go through this list and examine your life. Are you this kind of person? Ask the Lord to grow you in these areas and that you might help our church grow in godliness. Our elders are Christ's gifts to lead his church, reflecting his holy and tender character, and to help us as a church to reflect his holy and tender character. May the Lord bless our congregation by blessing us with men fit for this glorious task both for his glory and for our spiritual good. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your calling. It draws us to Christ, saving us. Oh Lord, your grace is magnificent and merciful. It abounds over our sin. Lord, we thank you for your grace that abounds in calling certain men to serve as pastors. Oh Lord, we pray that you would be at work already, raising up men among us, Lord, Lord, to serve faithfully in this local church. Lord, we pray that they will be men of integrity and honor, and that their lives would be used uh, for the good and well-being of others. Lord, do it for your glory, we pray, uh, that we might give our lives to serving Jesus as our Messiah, as our King, and living lives that honor him. We pray all this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.